Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're going again across the pond, all the way to Connecticut in the United States, and I have Mr. Drew Scheinman on the other line here. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Thanks, Marcus. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good morning there in, in the New York area in, and uh, evening here from Bangkok. So, uh, but uh, before we get into your amazing 40-year career, um, similar to recently, I had Claude Rubal on it, uh, where we spent nearly two hours. So this time we're going to try to keep this a little tighter. Um, and But it's still, there's so many amazing stops, which we're definitely going to dig into. Um, but before we go there, let me just sort of do a quick introduction of yourself. Um, you really spent your know, first decade in the in the world of baseball, uh, and we're going to dig a bit around there. Of course, you spent uh, you know almost eight years with Coca-Cola um, during the Atlanta 1996 90, Olympics. So we're going to spend some time in that space, of course. And then you had a couple of other interesting stops in between, um, which we'll dig around, Breeders' Cup, etc. Um, of course, you were also did, had a few years with with Endeavor, you know, WME, IMG there. Um, and now you're running Brand Velocity Partners, which is a, a new private equity group there. And, and I really want to spend some good time there because I know you're doing some really cool stuff. Um, so this is 40 years um, of being in the thick of the world of sports, marketing, you know, and I think you, you sort of see yourself a bit as a white space guy, right? Someone who comes up with new ideas um, and things. And, and I think it, it, from what I saw there is uh, – those white spaces you created um, generated over a billion billion dollars worth of you know top value top line value for companies you work with. So let's let's see how we dig up some of those great stories of what you've done across those things. Um, but before we of course go there, we always start right at the beginning and we'll go back to 1979. It's still uh, I'm not sure whether even we had color TV yet. <laughs> but uh, you were an executive management trainee in, in Major League Baseball. Please tell us how that all started so first of all i should say i started my 40 years when i was 10 years old so that helps my <laughs> exactly let's trying to do the math let's just dispel that very quickly i went to university of massachusetts i was one of the first ever uh, graduates in the sports management program and uh <clears throat> one of my projects was to create a hypothetical baseball franchise for worcester massachusetts and the great part about that was the goal was not only to to do the project and to do the learning but also to leverage that to get exposure and access to the kinds of executives that we wanted to get to know for future employment. Yeah, Fast sense. forward, I met I met one of the executives for who was the number two guy at the National League. He told me about this first ever executive training program and told me I should submit an app application. I did, and I was chosen with one other person amongst many thousands of people, as you can imagine, mm. with an entree into the world of the baseball business. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get selected and accepted as the one of two first ever trainees in the baseball program. Oh, wow. And it was designed, it was designed back in those days, it was designed to, it sounds like horse and carriage day, like back in those days, but it was <laughs> baseball. Baseball is a very fraternal sport run by a lot of families, and Bowie Kuhn, who was the commissioner at that time, had an idea that they really need to uh, recruit and cultivate and train the next generation of baseball executives, and that was the impetus for creating this program, and that was that was really part of the excitement of being part of it, not only being first, but getting 
the opportunity to get exposed to all facets of everything baseball. And then the plan was to go through the program. And then ultimately, if you were offered the job by a team, get accepted by one of the teams to, to be employed by them, right. of which I did with the Baltimore Orioles. Yeah, well, and we'll get that in a minute. Now, just another quick question. Were you a baseball guy? Was that your sport? Is it like you played it maybe in college or, or you just loved it? That's why you picked it? Or how did, why was it baseball? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I loved all sports. Baseball uh, at the time was probably my favorite sport. My dad was a big baseball guy, so we were a big baseball family hmm. for sure. And uh, not only was I passionate about the sport, but also from a marketing business development challenge, I always thought that baseball was the most challenging sport because there were so many seats that had to be filled and marketing and business development was an integral part of, of that business. Not that it's not for other sports, but in particular, there was more inventory that needed to be uh, addressed and focused on. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's get a dig a bit into the Baltimore Orioles, which you spent almost six years, and then you had another three years with New York Mets. So, you know, Baltimore Orioles seems to be obviously that's more of a, I guess, a you know smaller city state team, right? Versus and the the Nets obviously Mets are obviously in the big market like New York. I'm sure there's a big difference between the two of them, but. Um, describe a little bit uh, those, you know, almost nine years there um, in that baseball space. You know, what was it sort of? What would be that? What was the biggest learnings you had in that during those during those years? Well, it's great. It was a great experience because I got to meet a lot of different people. And from somebody new into the business world, you meet all different types of personalities, from athletes to owners to other executives across the universe that a sports team would touch. Mm. And then you also have a lot of really good learnings from uh, the direct experience from working with ad agencies, PR agencies, you know, selling sponsorship, driving revenue, all those things that go into making a team a success. The Orioles were appealing because it was almost like you, know, you go off Broadway to, to learn and develop your expertise, but the Orioles were at that time considered one of the premier franchises in all of baseball and all okay. of sports. Long time history of success, uh, you know, on the field, off the field was the opportunity for me to drive success and you know generate some new attendance records, but also to to work with a new ownership. At that time, Edward Bennett Williams and Larry Lucchino came in and took over the team, and you know, I don't mind saying I was in a great position at a very young age to be an integral part of the team's success, mm. you know, from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, that that said, the team the team won the World Series in 1983, All right. and that that never hurts, right? Yes, but <laughs> that was a, a great experience to be part of that. And then, you know, the opportunity came from New York Mets, and the team the management team is running. The Mets used to all work for the Orioles, mm. so it gave me the opportunity to come back home to New York, and then to work for the Mets. And I was with the Mets during. You know some of the best years in your entire franchise history, right. so it's very, very fortuitous in terms of the teams playing well, but also for me, you know, as a new guy into baseball, it was fun because we really merged, you know, sports as entertainment back, which today is so commonplace, but in those days it was really a very different approach and and took a level of personal risk to to get there, to make sure that you didn't offend or or violate the integrity of the game. 
mm. but more importantly, created value in a tasteful way and created differentiation in a very tasteful way that, that embraced all the great qualities of, of baseball. Yeah. Now give, give me one example, if you, even, whether it's from Orioles or from the Mets, um, of maybe something you would, everyone would take for granted now, but was maybe groundbreaking you know, in, in, the, in the 80s here in terms of what you did maybe from a marketing or, or from a revenue point of view. you have one maybe interesting example? Yeah, sure. There, there are many, but I'll focus on one. So the Mets at that time when I joined, and one of the other data points is I was a, a, a big time, I'd argue, obnoxious Yankees fan. Okay. <laughs> up. So working for the Orioles, I'll never forget going to an Orioles-Yankees game when they were fighting for the division lead. And people saw me rooting for the Orioles, and I'm like, Drew, what happened to you? I said, well, you know, it's funny how you become loyal to the guys who write your checks, yeah, you know? Yeah, so, you should be. And then, and then from there to the Mets, it took it to another level. But the Mets, the Mets in 85, we knew we had a very special team going into the 86 season. Mm. And so with that, we developed, and part of, part of my whole strategy was to breach out and generate the next generation of fans to become Mets fans versus Yankee fans because it was right. so competitive. The Yankees really owned New York. Yes. And one of the things we, did, we we created a number of videos, one of them, Probably the most well-known was called "Let's Go Mets," and we created a whole, uh, you know, jingle called "Let's Go Mets Go," which became the riding, you know, anthem, if you will, for Mets baseball for that year. Sure. And then we caught and rode the wave of the excitement and enthusiasm, and the radio stations playing the song, and all forms of media using the song, and the players being very actively involved in that. And it really just took over New York. And you know, there's there's stories today. Just in fact, I guess about a year and a half ago, Rolling Stone magazine wrote a story about the greatest anthem in baseball history about that. Let's go, Mets go. That's cool. Part of that was, it was cool, it was fun, but it was really very uh, grounded in a strategy, how to get people to pay attention to Mets baseball and how to position it very differently than Yankees baseball because the Yankees were really, and are still an institution. Yeah, they're huge. Mets, with the Mets, we had greater flexibility to cross the lines a little bit and to do things a little bit more progressively from an entertainment standpoint, and that was that was a big deal for you know, and definitely had impact for that year and then for many years going forward. Well, what again? I'm not. I know the Yankees, obviously, uh, as everyone else in the world probably does, but. Uh, what is the dynamics really between the two teams? Uh, you know, if you would compare it, you know, you have Man in Man- Manchester, you have Man United and Man City, right? One is the blue team, one is the uh, the red team. Um, how is that in New York between Mets and Yankees? Is that sort of similar that you have a very distinguished, different type of fan, or or how does that separate itself out? Yeah, no, it is. It is. Uh, it's a really good point. There is definitely a distinction in terms of uh, demographics of Yankee fans and Mets fans, and then certainly there's a distinction based on the success of the Yankees versus the long long term success of the Mets, mm. and so that creates a, a very intense level of competitiveness. Right. You know, not right. not necessarily on the field of play, but just in terms of pride and passion, and uh, you know, it's also really interesting. Yeah, because George Steinbrenner being such a you know figurehead as an owner of, of the Yankees, the yes. Mets were really the antithesis. Yeah. You know, the Wilpons are a little bit more quiet and discreet mm-hmm. than George was. Nobody, nobody could compete with George for the back page of the New York Post. That was right. just not what you'd want to do. Right. And then, then today, yeah, you know, literally today, you see, you know, the Mets have a new owner, Steve Cohn, who's the 
wealthiest owner in all of baseball and clearly going to do things differently and, and uh, release a lot of the purse strings that have been tied up for many years with the Mets. So it's going to be a very different day, you know, in terms of the competitiveness. And it will never be overt, mm. but behind the scenes, they definitely want to beat each other to the media positioning and to the fan positioning and ownership and then, you know, for our on-the-field success as well. Yeah. So I'm assuming you're back to be a, a, a Yankees fan, right? No. no. No? I'm not. No, so I, I definitely uh, come to the other side in part because by my nature, I just love the underdog and I just, you know, the Mets has certainly been an underdog in, in many ways and, you know, I just the, the way that the Yankees spend money so freely and, you know, they're just building an all-star team at every position is just not my style or my approach. Hmm. You know, to to sports and success, so uh, I'm definitely more a Mets fan, and I have been fortunate to have a World Series ring from both the Orioles and the Mets. Nice, uh, I like that. So yeah, that's cool. I, yeah, so <laughs> that, that's nice. great, great, uh, great, quick uh, look into the into your world of baseball. There, so that we probably can spend the whole hour just talking about it. Uh, obviously, the different dynamics there, but you have too many other exciting things in your in your career ahead of you here, which I want to you know jump in now. So. You know, next stop is Madison Square Garden. So you're in New York, obviously, um, and you know that arena is obviously the world's most famous uh, entertainment complex in the, on the planet. I had several guests already previously on the on the podcast who've also worked there, from Scott O'Neill to uh, Craig Economou, etc. But they were all a bit uh, many many years after you were there. So again, you and Al were in the sort of later part of the '80s, early '90s, uh, Madison Square Garden. That was very different than what it is today now. So Describe a little bit, you know, what 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 you were doing and and uh, you know what was the role there. Yeah, no question. It, it is worth just taking a step back if I can. So after I left the Mets, I decided that you know I wanted to have my own company. So I created a company called Entertainment Sports International. Okay. And I mentioned it's actually it's actually funny. Back in the day, you know, 1988, I guess it was like the first company that ever had entertainment and sports in the same moniker, the same right. name. Okay. And, cool. and did some cool things that one of, the, one of them was creating the first ever MTV Rock and Jock event, which became a franchise for MTV for 20 something years. <clears throat> and it was the whole integration of sports and entertainment. And I believe that athletes wanted to be musicians and musicians wanted to be athletes. And that was the impetus for creating that. And then I mentioned that because <clears throat> somewhere, you know, sometimes along the trail, things don't always work out. And while we were a small company doing some really cool things in integrating sports entertainment. Hmm. Our investor invested in a different business and lost the business, went bankrupt, and pulled the purse strings from us. So hmm. then, then you're in a position at you know the ripe young age of 20-something to decide, all right, do I keep the business going or do I you know, move on? And that, that was the opportunity when Madison Square Garden approached me to uh, come okay. in. Okay. So, so you had your first taste of the entrepreneurship already. All right, cool. Yeah, so I did. And you know, the garden hired me to, to, to run uh, marketing and business development for all, all the corporate entities, which include the teams, the entertainment side, uh, the production side, and work across all the levels of operations within the garden. And all a right. different, you know, very different structure, great opportunity to be cut across all variety of, of entertainment content from sports to circus to concerts, et cetera. 
And then part of my job in the business development side was besides providing value and revenue opportunities for the different uh, entities and divisions, was also to think about new creative ways to drive revenue for Madison Square Garden Corporation. Mm -hmm. And that was the impetus of creating the first ever fan fest for Major League Baseball that was in 1991 in Toronto. And taking the MSG production expertise outside of Madison Square Garden and getting rights from Major League Baseball, given my baseball background, to go do an event in Toronto and to be an event that Madison Square Garden would own. Uh, First year event was a wild success. Hmm. I had 120,000 people show up in Toronto, which was a great city to to do it. We had a number of different sponsors and really basically, again, changed the game from the integration of sports and entertainment Hmm. and create a first of now. It's in its 20-something year, and it's one of the biggest events in in and around Major League Baseball. And other teams have also, excuse me, other sports have also picked up on the FanFest concept. So we really created a cottage industry which was a great success, and uh, I'm proud to be part of that. You know, as part of leading a team to to execute on that vision. But I do remember along the way, again, just a a note about vision. I do remember along the way making a presentation to some very sophisticated executives in the media world. And when I presented this whole plan for doing it, they they looked at me like I had three heads. Like there's no <laughs> way that happened. Really? And short. Wow. short <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, it, exactly. that's what I love these when we look back, you know, now it seems to be the most obvious thing, right? Um, to right. do a fan festival around, if you look at what, you know, the Olympics and the and the World Cup doing, you know, on a global scale, um, that that would work, of course, in the U.S. for one of the major sports. It would seem a no-brainer, but as I said, that 30 years ago, that was a little different. Um, so I love that. And it's a great, I think it's a, I think it's important, you know, note about like, vision and courage and conviction and and you know the 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 mentality just to stick with things to see them through to completion so yeah the the whole premise was and this is why it's been relevant for other events as well the whole premise was take a two-day private event of the all-star game which is really the weekend right and turn it into a five-day celebration so that was the festival aspect. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can I can see that. Now then, you again, you know, I, I definitely want to spend a little bit of time here. Now you you jumped at a Coca Cola again. Uh, I had some some other. Uh, Claude was in Coke as well. I'm not sure you guys were even there at the same time. I have to check on the dates there. But uh, you were there during the uh, during the Olympics in in uh, in Atlanta, which you know was sort of the Coca Cola Olympics. I think how many people called it. <laughs> um, and uh, but you were there obviously several years before. So this was. Um, I'm not sure whether you join them because the you know the coke or the olympics were already awarded to atlanta at that time or how did how did the coke uh you know job started as director of sports marketing yeah so they uh it was before they were awarded the olympics mm-hmm. and you know when i was at uh the garden and, and my sports team experience i had a lot of exposure to interaction with the coca-cola executives right. and they made they made a decision that they wanted somebody to run sports marketing who really was not an insider, somebody come from the other side of the table who had done deals with Coke, mm. who could bring that perspective and a, and a different perspective to the role. So that was how they recruited me, hired me after the success of the FanFest event 
Uh, and then I joined, I guess it was 1991, I joined and they got the Olympics soon thereafter. Mm. Uh, and then, then I remember getting the Olympics, exactly what you said was the perception was the Coca-Cola Olympics. There was people that realized how much pressure there was on the company to do something really extraordinary to make a statement about the Olympics happening in Coke's hometown. Right. And that, that's how I got involved in, in the creation and expansion of Coca-Cola Olympic City. Okay. Yeah, tell us a bit about it. What 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 is the Coca Cola Olympic City? So it really it really was it was kind of fan fest, uh, you know, magnified by a very high multiple. So, you know, the Olympics coming to Atlanta, Coke needing to do something really special and unique and representative of the the Coke leadership or in and around the Olympics, mm. and is a, a vision and a plan that I had about creating a temporary theme park. And which is on the surface sounds pretty insane, and I guess in reality it was pretty insane. But yeah, we we pulled it off, and I joke that based on the original vision, that I had to do probably a thousand presentations from inside Coke to the you know, Atlantic Olympic Committee to the International Olympic Committee to all sorts of other constituents in and around the Olympics mm. to get uh, approved and blessed and get it supported by the sanctioning bodies that, that needed to do so. Uh, and then once we did that, it became an exercise in, okay, how, how are we going to operate this in a different way than typical Coca-Cola management is? And we made a decision to have an offsite office for the 50 plus people that uh, were part of my team that allowed us to just think more entrepreneurially and just be a little bit different in our approach to business and be hyper-focused without distraction on building and operating this theme park. Mm. And and I remember the, the final presentation was to the chairman, now deceased Roberto Goisueta. And, you know, in presenting it, it was a very significant investment for Coca-Cola. But his assessment was this, you know, if we could spend per customer, you know, $1.52 to own their their uh you know, perception and, and loyalty to Coca-Cola is well worth the investment, mm. you know. And so on that basis, we went forward. Uh, it was a great success. You know, certainly inter international notoriety and the visibility was, was extraordinary. And for Coca-Cola, it was a great validation, you know, of being a great leader, innovator in the world of sports and in the world of marketing. Is, is that sort of concept, I mean, now obviously you go to the Olympics, you do have these kind of fan festivals as well. It, was that a little bit sort of the first time where it became bigger and then since then it's been rolling around the world? Or or what, what was what's left of the Olympic City concept from, uh, from Atlanta? Uh, it continued to evolve. I mean, there were some elements, there were some uh, yeah, aspects of it that were very interactive and experiential. So the whole concept of experiential branding was uh, expressed through Olympic City, mm. and and it was really interesting because from my background prior to getting to Coca Cola, I had a very different perspective about how to you know create success in entertainment, and it, it was somewhat antithetical to the way Coke historically traditionally thought, you know, about putting signage up and you know a lot of visibility around presence marketing, and my whole approach was no, you have to get fans and consumers involved and get mm -hmm. them to interact with the brand, not just to look at the visible wallpaper. Uh, and that was a big part of the expression and the dimensionality of the Coca-Cola brand. And when he came through the park, 
you felt that. And my whole approach was create an entertainment window and let the fans and consumers come through the entertainment window. And on that basis, from a qualitative standpoint, you'll have much greater impact and you will quantitatively just in terms of the emotional aspects to, to own that consumer. Hmm. And that was, that was uh, largely led to a whole new creation of experiential brand marketing, not just with Coca-Cola, but many other brands as well. Yeah, I love that. And if someone always asks me, you know, what, what I've uh, envisioned myself coming out of uh, my whatever marketing MBA, I always say I, I always thought I would be a marketing director at Coca-Cola. <laughs> so you were there. I never got there, yeah. but uh, that's OK. Um, I live through you, the, the experiences here uh, and others I've interviewed. Uh, now, before we move on here, I, you know, obviously it wasn't just about the Olympics. Uh, you were there for eight years um, and Coke, you know, as we all know, has so many different facets, World Cup. NFL, NBA, you name it, uh, and, and I know you spend time in across obviously as as director of sports marketing across many different sports. What was sort of your other maybe some your favorite moment or, or sport uh, where you really felt uh, you came up with a new idea and, and made a difference? There were so many. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of like the kid in the candy store, right? <laughs> yes, so that's right. You have you have the relationships with all the major teams, leagues, properties, athletes, etc. Uh, there are many. We, we created a very innovative program called Monsters of the Gridiron, which was a Halloween promotion. Uh-huh. And we used uh, you know, the top NFL stars. This was in collaboration with the NFL, top NFL stars, and we created a whole trading card program with, them, with the athletes, the players, the NFL players dressed up as monsters. And it was, it was a pretty extraordinary program. And looking back on it today, again, a, a great example, representative of how to use talent, how to integrate into marketing. And how to sell product, hmm. and you know that's that's one of the great benefits of working in a place like Coca-Cola. You know that was came through our brand marketing group, and we were all involved. And it was a very much an integrated effort. So it's not like Drew created it, but Drew is an integral part of it. And that was a great experience and great lessons and learning about you know team management and how to do things as an integrated team. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I'm sure it's an amazing uh, learning ground. Um, with the brand itself. Now, you then went from working in the world of, you know, fast moving consumer goods to the world of property real estate was the president of Simon Brand Ventures. How does that happen? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's on the surface it doesn't make sense when you get into it. It it's partly defines me, partly defines, you know, opportunities. So, yeah. the the Simons were looking for somebody they had just rolled up uh, a number of shopping malls. So they became the first mall developer in the world that owned the number of malls they had at scale to create a network. So they recruited me to run, to create, build out the network from a marketing media standpoint and then to run it. And, you know, when they first approached me, it's like, uh, I'm not a mall guy. Like I'm really not interested in the mall. And then when I got into <laughs> it, I was like, wow, this, you know, th- those opportunities in life don't come around that often where you had a chance to not only change a company, but change an entire industry, you know, a very prolific industry of, of commercial real estate in the mall business. Right. And they really, they were interested in me and I was interested in them for the reasons they saw that I knew how to build brands. They knew how to, I knew how to dimensionalize brands. They knew I had to, you know, from the Coca-Cola Olympic city experience, you know, integrate it into real estate and integrate it into consumer interaction and adoption. And those are all similar things. And, and plus my experience at Madison Square Garden, the way they kind of viewed it, and I viewed it as like we had the opportunity to create 
a network of you know 200 plus Madison Square Gardens rolled up into right, one. Right. So that was a pretty extraordinary opportunity, and I just you know as a as a human being who's just wired around curiosity and and you know new opportunities and back to what you said at the beginning of white space. It's a massive white space opportunity right, to, right. to read the wall experience and to you know capture at that time they were doing two billion visits annually you know wow. so clearly an extraordinary marketing and mm. business development, revenue development opportunity and to work with you know the great leaders and pioneers in the industry the Simons you know mm. who are just uh, pretty extraordinary. Uh, success stories unto themselves. I, I have to admit, I, I'm obviously not familiar with the with, with the malls. What, what were they not, the, the, the malls are called Simon Malls, or they all have different names all across the country? Or well, it's a, it's, well, it's a great question because that was one of the other things that we did, you know, to build the network out. So the, we did some research and we found out that the local mall that you were in really has the primary brand equity, and no one really knew who Simon was. Right. But it was important that they did right. so. So we'd create, uh, you know, Roosevelt Field Mall, a Simon property, as an example. Right. And that was part of our initiative and effort to get the Simon name out there. And then we created other product offerings. And then there was uh, entertainment, you know, unique programming that took place at the malls all around what I called at the time the Simon Live Media Network Mm -hmm. because it really was a different form of media. It was live. Right. So So that was a big part of you know, getting the notoriety of the Simon name out there, but but not to the exclusion or the interference of the local mall, which is really what was resonated with the local consumer. Hmm, interesting. I mean, you know, again, we're talking early 2000s here now. Um, you know, the Internet has sort of had his, you know, starting to have his boom and bust already during those times. Were you already using, leveraging, uh, sort of, you know, look, or looking at how to, to leverage the, the power of the Internet for the malls, uh, connecting them in some fashion or, or not really yet? No, we did. We did. And in fact, I remember uh, a good friend of mine who's a leading Internet executive or digital media executive. Uh, you know, they have these forums. They would have these forums once a month, and each month, somebody would get to invite a guest. So he invited me to, you know, to one of these forums to, you know, talk about the mall experience. And in the room, you had like all like the most important, prestigious executives in the world of digital, you know, internet, <laughs> you know, media. And I got up and talked about the malls. And then I remember, you know, my friend Mark saying to me afterwards, like. You know, people came up to us like, hey, Drew is a really nice guy, but like, why did you invite him? Like, what does he have to do with the Internet? You know, like, <laughs> so that I, so that I, went, I went back and spoke again and I, I explained. I said, like, look, you don't realize, like, the mall is represents a real community. You're talking about a virtual community and we're uh-huh. the bridge from virtual to real. And then, mm-hmm. like, they got it. Then, like, yeah, no, we totally get it. And that was you know, very typical, the very myopic approach to a lot of the people yeah. back in the early days of – the internet. So at Simon, we were a leader in the whole bricks and clicks model yeah. okay. to integrate the two together. So to that extent, again, it was, it was great being a pioneer. It was great being an early adopter. It was great, you know, being the first to market in so many respects when you have such a great platform as the Simon Malls were. Yeah, yeah, and we can spend another half hour just talk about obviously how that has changed, right? And malls now, and and the whole 
online purchase, you know, e-commerce, uh, but we won't have that time. So I want to talk a little bit about Tiki Ventures here, your, uh, your, your partnership with Tiki Barber, who, again, for our international view, uh, audience might not, you know, might not recognize him. He's an NFL player, correct? Uh, if I'm correct. If I'm, uh, correct. Uh, he was. He, well, he, he was, was, correct, at that time. Uh, so uh, tell us about, you know, so how did you guys partner up and, and what was it all about what you guys were doing? Yeah, so uh, when I was at Simon, we'd go to the big real estate show called ICSC, uh, and we'd spend time and through the Simons, you know, I'd sit in meetings with Magic Johnson, who was developing Magic Johnson Enterprises and very prolific in real estate, and I'd sit in meetings and given my sports background, I'd always walk away and say, like, why is this guy Magic the only athlete really this involved and prolific in, in the world of business? Mm, okay. Um, uh, long story short, as you know, someone always kind of thinking and pursuing a white space. I saw Tiki Barber, uh, you know, on on a news show that he was doing just to get exposure into the world of news and to educate himself and indoctrinate himself into that world. And on that basis, it's like, wow, this guy's really a special guy. Obviously, he was a very successful football player, for Giants, yes. American team. And uh, so long story short, I reached out to the owner of the Giants, Bob Tisch, who I knew, and he introduced me to Tiki and Tiki's business partner, uh, Mark Lepselter. And fast forward, I sold him on the idea of creating Tiki Ventures with the goal towards replicating what Magic Johnson had done so successfully with Tiki. All right, okay. And then right out of the gates, I said, look, here's what I'll do. I'll build the plan. And I'll introduce you to my network of people who I think would be great partners. And the first person that we partnered up with was Steve Ross, who's the owner of – most people now know him as the owner of the Miami Dolphins. But he's also a, a very a prolific real estate owner, commercial and residential real estate owner in New York and around the world. And uh, you know, very successful business executive. And I had known Steve for years, and Steve's firm had a business in affordable housing. So we created a joint venture right out of the gates with Tiki Ventures with Steve in affordable housing. And you know, Steve and Tiki went on the national news, and Steve would talk about how he was such a low-key, modest executive, you know, multi-billionaire. But Tiki just took him to another level because of the mm -hmm. visibility. Okay. And so well, success with affordable housing. And then uh, Tiki was involved with Michelle Obama in the Let's Move campaign. And we had a number of other ventures in development with, uh, with Tiki. So it was a great success. And my plan always was to do that initially with Tiki and then to expand and scale to other athletes who had the wherewithal to be in that position or really committed to being in business. Right. And, uh, and again, you know, fast forwarding, this is sort of where now 2008, 10, year 12, um, you know, again, another 10 years, you know, on here, you know, it, it's almost a common theme now, right? You see the biggest names in the, in the world of sports are heavily investing in um, beyond their career, right? You know, whether LeBron James and the things he does or, you know, even even uh, David Beckham still recently invested in, in an esports team, you know, and took it public in London, so on the different side of the pond here. So, uh, you know, he's the owner, obviously, of an of a MFL, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Major League uh, football team in, in the U.S. as well, Miami, in Miami. So, clearly, uh, now it's it seems like 
again very common, but at that time, I guess it, as you said, it was very few doing it, right? So you, you know, you still follow the space quite a bit, I'm assuming, right? No, I do, and and as we keep going, I will come full circle in terms of other things that I've done. So very, very definitely, I've learned a lot about what it takes for an athlete or celebrity to be in business successfully. Because right. right. there's now, as you said, there's all so much going on. There's a lot of buzz. Uh, there's a lot of you know, sizzle that, that sometimes is not is the same level of results. And to that extent, the learnings over the years have put me in a position to really uh, be able to capture the value around that because when it works, it works yeah. on an extraordinary yeah. level, you know? Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll 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 come back to that in a in a, in a bit. Uh, but there's a couple more stops here which I would definitely wanted to highlight, and because uh, they seemed interesting. Uh, you know, one is of course the Breeders Cup. Uh, you were their chief marketing and revenue officer for again sort of a couple of years. Uh, huge event, uh, again well known around the world, but also of course a very American uh, thoroughbred, so to speak. Um, you know, how do you end up in 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 horse racing? So it's uh, there's a common theme here. It's kind of funny. When I went to Coke, I was the non-Coca-Cola guy, right? And then when I got recruited to Simon Malls, I was the non-Mall guy. Right. And then when I got to the Breeders' Cup, <clears throat> I got a call out of the blue from a recruiter saying, hey, Drew, we got this really interesting role and we thought of you. You know, They're looking for an innovation leader. I was like, oh, that sounds like me. That sounds pretty cool. Like, Tell me about it. He said, yeah, it's the British Cup Horse Racing World Championship. He said, and, by, and I said, well, I really don't know anything about the horse racing. He said, by design, I want somebody who knows very little about horse racing. I said, okay, that sounds interesting. And long story short, I went through the process and I realized that there was a great opportunity, again, white space opportunity around what they were doing hmm. and not fully optimizing the potential that I saw you know, with, with the Breeders' Cup as an event and the Breeders' Cup as a platform and Breeders' Cup as a as an integral leader in terms of making horse racing worldwide, you know, the success that it could be. Right, so right, I, right. I took the job, again, as the, as the non-horse racing newbie, uh, and it was fascinating. One of the first things I did when I went to the board accepting the, the job is I said, okay, well, I'm going to accept the job, but, you know, I, when I start, I want to go on a listening tour for 30 days. And this is something I'd recommend for anybody who's coming into a new position or a new industry. Hmm. So 30 days, I put together a list with the help of board members and other executives in the Breeders' Cup, a list of you know, the, the people who surround the horse racing industry, which is a pretty extraordinary group of, of individuals, you know, from team, from horse owners you know, to gamblers to degenerates, gamblers, you know, to all around. And, and I learned so much in that 30 days that it put me in a great position to really think objectively about how to take the, the, the platform, the brand, and the business forward. And uh, I really had a blast. I traveled the world, you know, promoting all the, all the good that exists around the horse racing world because a lot of people don't see that, you know, particularly in the United States, they don't see that aspect of horse racing, you see a very different side of it. But it was uh, it was a great experience. I really, really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Horse racing is an amazing, amazing sport. Uh, now, before we sort of uh, start finishing up into your what you're doing now, uh, you know, we can't really. We, we got to, you know, at least stop by here at uh, our friends from IMG or Endeavor, as they're called now. Um, you know, the, the the three years you spent there in the. I guess what you call what's called brand ventures right and again i guess it was linked to talent so what we touched on earlier a bit um and i think you also created something interesting for the for sort of a what's called the football greats alliance with you know for retired footballers as in you know, american football players i'm assuming um you know tell, tell us a bit about that uh, that sounds really interesting as well so the two two parts of that one part was uh in in being one of the pioneers in helping athletes be successful in business when I when I did that along the way post the Tiki Ventures and I kept doing it with the individual athletes hmm. you know, I realized I was onto something I, and I sought out the counsel of somebody who's very involved with the whole Endeavor world as an investment banker and I said look I think I'm onto something I'm trying to figure out how to scale this you know I'd love to get your ideas he said look Ari, Ari Emanuel has been trying to figure this out for years you gotta meet with Ari hmm. long story short met with Ari and uh, and it took some time because I was still involved with the Breeders' Cup, but over time they recruited me originally to come into the company to run uh, licensing for North America. Mm-hmm. And so that was a great opportunity. The, li- the world of licensing is just a fascinating business. And I got was very fortunate to work for you know one of the, the leaders in the world in licensing, Bruno Maglioni, who ran licensing for IMG Worldwide. And... So I did some really uh, interesting licensing endeavors. One of them was, as you said, to create the first ever agency for retired football players, 22,000 retired football players that was created in partnership with the NFL. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a great experience and really not only uh, rewarding from a financial standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint because you were helping out a lot of the NFL players who really are in need of help financially and with benefits, et cetera. Right. So – that was that was a great success, and then, based on when I joined the company, uh, WME William Morris had bought IMG, so the merger was happening right when I joined the company. Oh, right, okay. And as part of the merger, there was a real uh, strategic imperative from the leadership to go integrate across all divisional lines. And the beauty of what I was doing was it touched so many groups throughout the company, from the music group to the agenting group to the festivals group to all all aspects in a very diverse company right so that was that was really uh invigorating and it was really uh productive and then that led me to back to where my original entree was to ari having known you know people at wme and img my whole life but get you know the whole idea to create a group that was focused on talent brand ventures and talent you know ran the gamut from sylvester stallone to the you know, to Alex Rodriguez, to across the board of supermodels, et cetera. Yes. And, and it was, you know, it was really, it was great because we were creating something new that we knew had great value. And I was described inside the agency as Agent 4.0. All right. Most, okay. I like that. Most, most agents are, by design, very transactionally oriented. Right. And uh, allows more about the future, development, and the venture side. And so we had great success uh, and definitely broke new ground in the world of Endeavor because as the agency name changed. And along the way, one of my clients was Kobe Bryant. And I was very 
to work with Kobe and you know, obviously a great, great visionary. And one of the, when I read an article about this really cool toy company that had a technology spin to it that was very much aligned with what Kobe's interests were. Okay. And Sai, I might as well reach out to the owner of the company, and I did, and the owner was a private equity firm, uh, and I reached out to the owner cold, I didn't know him. Uh-huh. And Steve, Steve Leibowitz, who's my now private equity partner, he and I hit it off as one of those rare guys in finance that really understood my world of marketing, innovation, you know, special sauce, activation with talent, et cetera. Right. And we created a, a fast friendship. And then on that basis, I had always been thinking about in private equity, There again, there was a white space opportunity to be more marketing and brand, mark, brand development focused. And that was my vision for Brand Velocity Partners shared with Steve Leibowitz. And so he left his PE firm and I left Endeavor and we started what is now called Brand Velocity Partners. Uh, and with that, we started, I guess, about now two years ago. And so to date, you know, as an independent sponsor, not a fund, we've closed you know, three primary acquisitions and two add-on acquisitions. So we've been very, very active, you know, thus far very successful in the introduction of Brand Velocity Partners into the marketplace. And the differentiation is largely, you know, again, with a brand and marketing focus, we can bring that value to these middle market companies. We're here before they really haven't focused on marketing and business development, mm. but they're successful in their EBITDA and their sales, and they have a great opportunity to, to grow and, and go forward within our model. So it's it's been, it's been you know very successful thus far. The most recent deal that we did called Barbecue Guys, which is the leading high-end e-commerce company in the home grilling space. Barbecue Guys uh, deal closed at the end of August, and we announced it soon thereafter. And back to the athlete as investors and entrepreneurs, et cetera, we brought in the entire Manning football family. Oh, wow. American okay. Family, yes. Along, along with two other Hall of Famers, LaDainian Tomlinson and Steve Hutchinson, who's going to the Hall of Fame this year, mm. uh, brought them all in as, as strategic investors and ultimately would be brand ambassadors for the business. Okay. And so that's an example of the strategic alignment and coming and connecting all the dots, so to speak. Yeah, so that the, the whole world of, you know, athlete, uh, you know, brand ambassador activation is certainly a part of what we're doing with right. brand velocity partners, but only only when it works in an authentic way. Because I've seen too many attempts where people just do it because they think it's it's the sexy thing to do, and it doesn't really grounded in a business rationale. For us, it's a approach. So you're going to give George Foreman a bit of run for his money, right? I guess. Exactly. There you go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's a great example, obviously, what he's done in a similar space, right? He's Mr. Barbecue, in my mind, at least. Uh, maybe uh, you still, you get, your barbecue guys still have to uh, do a bit more work on that one. Um, but the, before we get into some of the other uh, um, the investments you have, I, what I wanted to come back for a second was the what I really loved about the core values of the company. Um, you know, again, you, you still obviously a young young business here, less than two years old. You know, you guys started in early 2019. Um, but if I read it correctly, it's it's all about kindness, caring. Um, you know, it's another. 
uh, words you use, um, how to describe what the what the company is about, which is, I would say, very different than your usual private equity uh, terminology. I would argue. So, where does that come from? You know, where, where does that where is that uh, underlying? Uh, you know the, the how you want to differentiate itself here. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. It's uh, it's authentic to who we are. Myself and my my two partners, founding partners. Mm. That's who we are. And uh, part of what we set out to do was to disrupt private equity because private equity, I don't mind saying, has a bad connotation. And you're sharp, sharp, sharp elbowed, and you know taking advantage of the situation. And typical private equity, you come in, you buy a company. They cut costs and employees lose their jobs. We, we as part of beyond the marketing side, want to turn that model upside down mm. and really show that we care about the employees and embrace you know their relevance and their importance to the success of the company. And and why not be kind, right? Why not actually care about them in a way that makes sense? It doesn't mean that we're not capitalists because we are, <laughs> but we can, we can create the balance and the alignment of all those things because we do believe it all comes together. And and in the new year, I'm sorry, Marcus, I can't tip it off right now, but we have a number, two two really breakthrough programs we're going to introduce awesome. to support to support that. So we're not just talking about it, we're actually doing it. And that's, you know, it's really invigorating when you know you could do well and do good at the same time, yeah. you know, and yeah, well, hopefully, again, we'll have a chance to talk about it in the new year. But uh, the uh, I'm assuming is also that the people who bring the capital, right, your LPs and others, they, there there will be plenty out there who also like that approach, right? They're not just about just make me lots of money and I don't care how you do it, right? I'm sure there are people with a conscience out there um, and want to have their money used in the right way. Would, would that would also that attract the kind of investors in that sense for you? Very, very definitely, yes, mm. yeah. Uh, again, the the investments and the acquisitions we've done are always grounded on an investment thesis, right? So nothing we're suggesting gets in a way of doing good deals, right? If you could do good deals and do great things all around it, then that's great for the business, and we think it's great for society. And so, and where the investors we have are very much aligned with that vision, that belief, and the, the ethos of who we are and what we're doing. And the cool part is we're we're really just getting started and telling message. So I'm thrilled that you picked up on that because you're a very savvy person who sees a lot of you know business deals and a lot of new companies. And to us, that is really uh, uniquely who we are, mm. and that's why we're so so passionate about it. And we believe, as again, it changes changes society. Then we win, and everybody else wins too. It's not like it's something we're going to own in private equity. Everybody can own it, and it just makes the world a better place. Yeah, exactly. No, I like that. Now, again, let's go into a bit more uh, the nuts and bolts of this here for a minute. Uh, first of all, you called it you an independent sponsor. Uh, can you explain that a little more for the less educated PE folks here? What does that mean? What's the difference um, in terms of how you raise money and deploy the money? Sure. So uh, we're not a fund. So we decide deal by deal. We look at the opportunities to find deals that fit our threshold, our threshold is now north of $5 million in EBITDA. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the threshold in the, in the consumer brand space. So when, when we find a deal that is aligned with our, our model, then we go out and we get, secure the rights to get the funds to go close on that deal. Right. So, the, so the beauty of that is it gives us tremendous flexibility 
in terms of the kind of deals we want to do and the kind of people we want to do the deals with. Mm-hmm. And that, that, you know, is very much aligned with, with my partners and me because by our nature, you know, we're good, fair people in the world of investing. And so for a lot of people who see opportunities who heretofore haven't necessarily trusted the other parties, they have a great deal of comfort with us and a great deal of interest in working with us, you know, to basically ride our model and become, if they find a deal and we go acquire the deal, they could come, become a GP in the deal. Mm. So that, that's the flexibility of an independent sponsor. You don't necessarily have that same flexibility with a fund. So okay. for us, you know, for us, it's worked out exceptionally well. You know, there's no shortage of capital out there for good quality deals. And we've proven that we can get the deal, sign it up, do all the due diligence, everything around that, and get the, the deals funded to close the deals. Right. So, so you, 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 so you, in a sense, do you have a group of you know investors which you then always go back to, or every deal you find different people? How, how does it work really in in in, in, re, in the real world? There, there are some uh, investors that have cut across our three deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but largely it's new investors each deal. But as we grow and you know as we do more deals, I anticipate a lot of the investors will be with us throughout our portfolio acquisitions. Got it. Got it. Oh, interesting. But it's not it's not a, it's not a requirement. It's not a certainty. And honestly, it's uh, we love the flexibility because it opens up a whole new network of capital, deal by deal. Right. Yeah, interesting. And now, in terms of uh, the spaces you guys look at, uh, I think when the last time we spoke, you mentioned health, uh, health and wellness, tech, uh, food, nutrition. So, um, do you you look at things where, and again, there is a bit of a sporting element to it, or really not not, not necessarily? It, it doesn't matter. Are you just bringing your general, you know, knowledge of your forty years into the into these companies? It's a, it's not a prerequisite. And there, there's a lot of money chasing a lot of deals in the sports space. So right. I don't saying back to white space. I think there's some really great companies that are in the sporting lifestyle space. Mm. We're looking at a couple of them now, in fact, that you know are are fat, in fact sports because they're within that zone of the enthusiast category. But it's not a it's not a prerequisite. We found a company that had nothing to do with sports. I still think there's opportunity, if it makes sense and it's authentic, to bring in sports talent or make connections of sports properties and associations. So it, it, it depends on the circumstance. Like Barbecue Guy, for example, was not a sports company, but very definitely. I saw the link. Uh, yeah, very definitely. As part of our growth plan, their athletes will be involved. We'll be doing sponsorship deals and media deals in and around the sports community because it's very much aligned. So that's a good example of kind of one of those situations that the experience of 40 years, you know, definitely comes into play and value in terms of extracting maximum value on behalf of companies that that we now own. Yeah, for sure. Now you mentioned you were you did three deals already. Um, so we talked about barbecue guys. Maybe you might have one more, one or two of the, what were the two other guys, uh, the other the two deals you have. So the first deal uh, that we acquired, first company was called Original Footwear. So they're the largest manufacturer distributor of military footwear in right. the world. Okay. And so yeah, they're a great success, legacy, history in in the military world, which as you can imagine, those contracts are very tough to secure. Mm. Uh, you know, the white space opportunities to take their same quality of product into the consumer space. Right, okay. And then over time, somewhere down the road, 
uh, likely into the fashion space. So just, you know, creative ways to and leverage their, you know, very unique proprietary position in the military world mm. into other categories. Interesting. So very, and, and the cool part about that company, similar to the other two, but that one was out first, uh, the CEO had certainly many other options, you know, afforded to him through private equity. Mm-hmm. And he cho- chose us because we're entrepreneurs, because we're good guys, we care about people, and because we bring the marketing business development expertise. So, you know, a great, great example representative of our unique positioning in the world of investing, similar to the other deals that were, were followed original footwear. Yeah, I love that. No, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, uh, it, really interesting stuff. Now, um, anything else you wanted to, to mention when it comes to brand velocity? Because I wanted to also just uh, briefly touch on Vision Works. Um, obviously, a business you've been a partner of since, uh, you know, for many years, 15, 16 years now. Uh, and again, it's very unique, um, as I'd love to just hear a little bit about that. But uh, also, we don't want to miss out on uh, anything else you, you know, some of the, you know, this year clearly was a difficult year for for anyone in the world of, of uh, in business. It doesn't matter which industry, well, most industries you're in there. Um, how do you see 2021 lining up um, for brand velocity? Uh, besides what you mentioned earlier, that you have a couple of interesting things. Is there anything you can touch on and talk about already, or uh, what your focus will be next year? Uh, just going back to this year, because I reflect on this year with obviously all the world global challenges, the pandemic, etc. Like. We've actually had a great year, and I don't, I don't want to say that without sensitivity to so many people who've been affected by COVID. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's been we and the and the great part about that when you're an entrepreneur, like even in tough times, you figure out how to pivot and evolve, and your right. grit and your fight, you know, you 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 figure it out. So right. I'm very proud of my partners and the people around us to have been successful, even in very challenging times. Yeah. Uh, so including raising a lot of money for our last acquisition all virtually. So like wow. that, that's what you got to do, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So that, I mean, there were always see a ton of distressed assets out there since, you know, for the last six months already and will clearly be more uh, going forward, including in sports. Uh, does that tempt you, you know, being a sports guy to kind of go, oh, how about investing in a, in, a, in a football team or a baseball team or whatever is out there right now or, or not really? Well, it really depends on how distressed it is right. right so true. we're not we're not turnaround guys, right? We're buying EBITDA, so if it meets our EBITDA threshold, okay. yeah, you know, and some level of success and the opportunity, white space growth to take it further, that's what's appealing to us. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, <laughs> you know, as as it relates to to you and your network, you know, we are all about like deal flow, right? And the cool part is we built a a great now kind of machine that can look at deals quickly assess them do the due diligence and if it makes sense go forward get the deals done and right. to that extent right. we're excited about expanding the network you know to look at more deals and and people who believe in our ethos and believe in our model i think it's very unique and and very appealing yeah, so the, yeah we have to bring you to asia do something yeah, out here exactly. <laughs> so no. going forward Going forward into 2021, you know, I, we 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 exceeded our goals so far. So we're definitely, you know, back to sports. We are very competitive. You know, we like to win, yeah. and you know, so we anticipate we'll have similar success in 2021, and are really excited about that. 
Yeah. Awesome. Now, as our little cool down here, I think this is perfect to go there because VisionWorks, um, I'm assuming does maybe many things, but the one I can read about here obviously is uh, with Revel Spirits, which is a high quality um, agave spirits, which I'm not even sure what that is, but uh, you can tell us all about it. <laughs> what are we drinking here? <laughs> so we're drinking, it's actually agave spirits. Agave and, spirit, okay. So okay. most most people know tequila and mezcal. Uh, okay. Rebel Spirits, We, we because uh, my partner is the CEO of the company, so I'm an investor and I'm on the board of Rebel Spirits. Hmm. So I met uh, my partner in, in that business, Michael McFarlane, a uh, great, very successful music executive, and I came across Revel actually when I was working with Sylvester Stallone, and he was interested in getting into the spirits business. Okay, and I met this company and just love the people, love the product, and with that, you know, decided to get involved uh, and be an advisor and help them. So it's uh, it's a disruption play again. You see a common theme here about disruption in white yeah. space. But we saw an opportunity. There's tequila and then mezcal here, particularly in the United States and around the world, has become really popular as like another category in the agave spirits world. Okay. We decided okay. we decided to create a, a whole new category uh, called Avila, and so Avila is like another. So champagne has varietals, you know, in a similar way agave spirits has varietals. So this is a category that, you know, to Micah's credit and vision. He created and he owns, was part of Revel Spirits. And so the product, the initial product is Revel. And it's been doing very well with winning taste tests you know, around the U.S. In, in its rollout over the last year and a half or two years. And it all comes out of a great region in Morelos, Mexico. Uh, cool. Yeah. So, so have you brought any athletes in there yet? I mean, you mentioned earlier Sylvester Stallone, who um, I'm not sure he's an investor in it as well. Um, because, you know, you have Dwayne Johnson, obviously, you know, taking, you know, starting a tequila brand. You have uh, Craig, uh, was it, um, McGregor um, starting his, uh, what is it, whiskey, yeah. I'm assuming, right, uh, brand there. So, you know, athletes are going in it. Um, so, with, you know, what we talked about earlier, have you brought anyone yet into, uh, into your business here? Yeah, we have uh, Justin Hartley, who's a actor in the show This Is Us, which is top-rated shows on NBC Network here in the United States. Okay, uh, so he's involved as a partner, and we made a decision. We didn't want a face of, or we didn't want to do the typical celebrity activation play because mm -hmm. you know, we are we're more about creating a movement around the farmers in Mexico and Morelos where the product is made. Okay. So it's a, it's a little okay. different strategy, and we want to do that. In more of like a community, not just one person. Because sometimes, when it works, like Dwayne Johnson's doing a great job, I yeah, think, amazing, and you know, yeah. George Clooney did a great job, and Ryan Ryan Reynolds did a great job. You know, so when it works, but our strategy is a little bit different, just based on creating a whole new category. At right. some point, there may be, but that's not really part of the plan but, to date. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got, you know, some big Mexico stars in football and boxing, right, and baseball. I mean, you name it, right? There's uh, plenty of uh, amazing athletes out there who could relate to probably the story and, you know, maybe it depends on where they're from and in, in which part of Mexico. And uh, you know, it could be, any, could be an interesting one to explore down the line there. But cool. 
Look, uh, Drew, that was fun here uh, and also very nicely in time with, I know you also have to run um, and uh, I think we managed to touch on all the different parts of your incredible career and, and we had a good look into what you're doing now there, which I wish you best of luck. Uh, of course, we are just about on the holidays, so happy holidays, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Marcus, thank, thank you so much. You do the same and really enjoyed it. I love what you're doing. It's great for the industry to keep people connected and it's great for new people who want to get into the industry to hear all these various stories. And it's not, uh, it's not without a lot of effort to pull this all together. So yeah, really appreciate uh, what you're doing exactly. to pay it forward. Yeah, I, I, you know, I always say I learn and I hope others do as well uh, listening to us here at the same time. You know, there's so much uh, value in it. Uh, speaking to someone who's been doing this for 40 years. So thank you so much, Drew. You have a great time, a good day there in New York or in Connecticut, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Marcus. Have a great night. Thank you, Drew. Cheers. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.